right, so we are really excited um, to share Lillian with you. So I'm going to ask Lillian to come up onto the stage. Lillian is uh, from Uganda, where we've had a long-standing partnership uh, with Compassion. Uh, she was once a Compassion kid, and when they called and said she was going to be stateside uh, sharing her story with different churches, I was like, please, 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 can we have her come to Waterstone? So you guys are in for a treat this morning. We're so glad to have you here. And if we could just welcome Lillian, and then I'm going to turn it over to her. So. Thank you very much. Good morning. Praise the Lord. So when we're in church back home, we're very flexible. We raise our hands to the sky and say hallelujah. So you're going to try it out if you don't mind. When I say praise the Lord, we wave our hands to the sky and say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Does it make you feel like you're in church? <laughs> Thank you for that worship. That was really great. My name is Lilian Mugisha, as they have told you. I come from Uganda. I'm so happy to be here, particularly in Waterstone. You know, I've hosted many people from Waterstone Church in my country. I had no idea where you're found. <laughs> Even when I was coming, I did not know that I was actually coming to the actual Waterstone. <laughs> Until when we reached there, and I was like, we are a bit lost. I don't know why that we are in the right address. And then I saw you look and I told my husband, oh, there it is! <laughs> I could identify with the logo, and I was like, I remember them. Thank you for sending missionaries to Uganda to change the lives of children. Thank you for giving. Thank you for sponsoring children. I know that Waterstone Church, you're sponsoring over 400 children. But thank you for your generosity towards Sironko. For those of you who don't know, for us in Uganda, you're famous. You have changed a whole community. You have turned the community from a rural, poor village to a city because of your generosity. You can never understand what you have given to, but I wish you can come and see. May God bless you. I came with my husband. Woo. My husband is called Davis. Yeah. <laughs> that is the lovely man God gave me. I come from Uganda, and Uganda is a small country with a big population. It is, a, I think it's 44 million people. And in the city where I live, we're like six million people during that time, and two million people at night. That tells you how much traffic we have in our tiny roads. We have very tiny roads. I want to tell you, Americans, you should praise the Lord for your country. <laughs> when I tell you, raise your hands up, I mean it. It's from my heart that if you do not find anything to praise God for, you should praise God that you have water. You stretch your hand to the top. I enjoy that. <laughs> I stretch my hand to the top. I put my glass. I draw the water and I drink. That doesn't happen in Uganda. We do not have safe water from the, from the top. It is difficult to even, the first orientation I'll give you is do not take water from the top. It's not good for your health. And for you, you're taking water and you're finding it so free. Praise the Lord for that. Another thing I want to praise God for, 
you have very well structured roads. <laughs> we have had the privilege of driving through Denver. And let me tell you, it's the first time we are driving in America. In Uganda, we keep left. In America, you keep right. Is that true? So I have, we have to remind ourselves, right. We are keeping right. And it's been fun. <laughs> it's not fun to drive in our city, even us who belong to our country. You have to do the zigzag driving. I don't know whether there is a course called zigzag driving. You need to learn it when you're driving in Uganda. But in America, it's just too straight, too structured. Road rules are clear. When I host visitors from America, the first thing they tell me when they come, driving from the airport, <laughs> Oh my goodness, there are no road rules. <laughs> How do we drive the rules are in the head, I think. <laughs> so you should praise God for every small bit in your country. For us, it's big. When I, see, when I sleep on your beds, <laughs> I feel like praising God through the night. <laughs> because they are bouncing. You sleep and you forget that you're sleeping. That is what you should use to praise God. Those small, small things, never take them for granted. Never. I go to the grocery store and there's so much. And I can't even know what kind of foods you're having. It's too much. You have a lot. <laughs> You have a lot. You should give God the glory for that because God has blessed you, America, and I thank you for your generosity. Your blessings have not st stayed in America alone. You've changed lives. You've changed our lives because of your giving. So thank you for having open hands. I am here because of your generosity. I am coming from a poor country. A poor country where you cannot raise a confident lady to stand before people and speak. I was a shy girl growing up, very timid. I used to feel worthless all the time. I come from a big family. In Uganda, we have a big population. I told you 44 million, but 75% of that population is unemployed. So if you, shall, if you have a job, praise the Lord. We are surviving on 25% of the employed population. But when I was growing up as a child, I saw emptiness. Coming from a big family, this big family is not nice. Full of violence, competition, hatred, rage. My father had six wives. Don't try it if you're a man here. <laughs> My mother was one of them. My mother gave birth to four of us, two girls and two boys. Every stepmother I had had children. Some of them were nine, others were 10, others were five. So I don't know how many half brothers and sisters I can count even up to now. My mother, unfortunately today, when I was, when I was only three months old, Three months old, I had no mom. Mom left me with her father, my grandfather. My grandfather saw that I was going to die. He had a six-year-old, my elder sister, and my two elder brothers, and he was confused, I am sure. He had buried a daughter, and he was looking forward to burying a grandchild. 
but he did not want me to die in his hands. He wanted me at least to die in the hands of another person. He took me to my father's house. As I told you, my father's house had its own issues. Many women, many different children, different children belonging to different mothers, the house of violence, everyone competing for attention, everyone hating the other. And there I was handed to my stepmother as a baby. It is very difficult for babies to survive in Uganda and in many countries that are poor. There are so many poverty-related diseases. But the Lord helped me. I survived them. If I did not survive, I wouldn't be speaking in Waterstone today. <laughs> as a baby growing up, yes, I went through so many diseases, and I started growing. My brothers were taken to different relatives. I didn't even know where they were. I stayed with my elder sister in the house where we had a lot of half-siblings. Each one did not like us. We were not loved because our mother had died. If you had a mother, you had security. And unfortunately, the father was also not there. My father was kidnapped. They were looking for him. My father was murdered. I was only five months old when that happened. I could not know the sweetness of Jesus when before I made a year, I have no daddy, I have no mom. I don't even know what it means to have parental love, even up to now. But thankfully, growing up, I, it was a life of survival, as it is to many children in Africa. Survival is for the fittest. You have to survive anyway. If you don't survive, then you die and we bury you. That was the life I grew up in. Every year, we buried someone. Every year, the tears of losing a half-sibling, the tears of losing an uncle. I hated God because I saw God was taking away from me all the time. My heart was tender. My heart grew tough. I had this anger for God. I was like, I don't love Jesus. We used to go to church, and at church, I never used to enjoy it. I did not have a good wear for Sunday service. I didn't even have shoes. Today I'm putting on these nice red shoes, but these feet walked to church bare when I was a child, through the thorns and the stones. And it was worthless to praise God when you're seeing the difference in the lives of others. We did not have food at home. I remember we had pigs that we used to rear for income. Many other times we walked to the neighbor's places looking for scrap for the pigs, pretending that we are looking for scrap of pigs, but we ourselves ate those. I remember picking up molds, food with molds from people's rubbish bins, and hiding somewhere to peel off the molds and eat because I was hungry. My sister was hungry. We had to share that. And on reaching home, you have something in you because you know that in the house there's nothing to eat. You actually are going to survive on water or you're going to survive on nothing. And this water, when I say praise God for your country, for us we used to walk three to four miles to look for water to use. 
Now, when I say walk, I remember Waterstone because when your missionaries came to Uganda, they used to teach me to pronounce the word walk and war. <laughs> Up to now, I still practice walking, walking. Okay, we used to take steps to the well. <laughs> and at the age of seven, I carried my 20 liter jerry can of water on my head, walked back home to carry that water. It wasn't enough for a big family. And this water was never clean because we got it from dirty wells. The cows are feeding on the same water. The pigs are feeding on the same water. You are drawing water with your jerry can. You're carrying it on your head. You reach home and you go to the bush to look for firewood. You make fire as if you're camping. Sometimes you may think it's fun. That's how life was. And as kids, we would just drink the water as it is. You reach the well when you're thirsty. You just gallop. You keep on galloping. And you got, we got sick. We were sick almost every time. But we never had even a single coin to go and see a doctor. It's expensive to see a doctor. So if you survived, praise the Lord. If you died, would bury. That is the feeling as a child growing up like that, having no hope. Every child in poverty needs hope. If God says, I have a plan of good for you, to give you a hope and a future. At that time, I did not see hope. I did not see future. I wasn't going to school. Going to school as a child and then being called out, Lillian, you have not paid tuition. Go back home. And you're going back home to the emptiness. No one has money to pay the school. At that time, our government was not even taking care of our school dues. Nothing. You go to school and you have no book. You're asking your friends, give me a piece of paper and I write my notes. That's a life of emptiness, a life of hopelessness, a life that has no reason to say God loves me because I did not see his love in my emptiness. My turning point came when I was eight years old. In our hopelessness, my elder half-brother took me to a Baptist church that was partnering with Compassion and was registering children for Compassion sponsorship. My sister was taken far away to work as a house helper because at least she had become like 12, she could manage housework. And me who was taken to the church, I thought I was the only one. But when I reached this church, we were over 200 kids looking more miserable than I even looked. I remember I had a flower dress which had many holes. Right now I can say it had many windows <laughs> that I kept on holding there because I did not want kids to see. But when I reached there and I saw the kids that were waiting for registration, I released my holes because everyone looked the same way I looked. And they told us to smile before a camera and I did not have a smile. We had walked a long journey to come to this church. I was tired. I was hungry. I was full of dust. And they told me, smile for a photo. I could not smile. They gave me a piece of chocolate. I didn't even know what chocolate was. But they gave me a piece of chocolate that made me to smile. Even up to now, when you give it to me, I smile. <laughs> that photo changed my life. 
we walked back home in our emptiness. I didn't know what it meant because we were so many children. This is where a poor child can see another poor child and know that, oh, that one is poor. When we walked back home, a few months later, we were told that Lillian has got a sponsor. My sponsor was called Rosemary from Australia. She picked me. I don't know whether she really picked a beautiful girl, but she picked me with hope that she can change my life. I did not know what it meant. But we started going to this compassion project every Saturday. We started learning about Jesus. We started reading about the Bible, reading the Bible. But every Saturday we walked to this project with hope that there is food. We would eat a lot of food that you can, I can never describe, and our stomachs were expanded because you're eating for one week. But one thing I remember, whenever we starved at home, the church got groceries and brought to our house that we could not go and pick rubbish. We had a rice, we had some sugar. And one thing I remember they gave me, my sponsor sent me a birthday gift and I bought a mattress. And as a child, I had never slept on a mattress. We used to cut grass in our garden and put the grass in a sack, leave it to dry, and that was our mattress. You lay it on the floor. If you have a blanket, praise the Lord, we never had one. My stepmother would give me her dresses to cover at the times when I was sick. And if I was fine, that was confusion. Who has what to cover? But when I walked back home with this mattress, four inches, I think it was four by four, I reached home with joy. We shared this mattress, six of us. You would only do head, rib, like this because everyone was excited to share the same mattress, to sleep under the mosquito, nest, the mosquito net. We suffer malaria in Uganda, and you have to sleep under a mosquito net, and here I don't have to do that. But as a, as a growing up child, when I continued growing up, life changed. I was going to school, compassion was paying for my education, praise the Lord. I had a ray of hope. But when I was 16 years old, Life was hard to balance. Going to school, I had to go to the Compassion Project. My family expected me to work for them. Fetch water, cook, take care of the kids, take care of the home laundry, balance going to school. So I would wake up very early in the morning, do the work, run from school, because you have to to take care of, the, of people's kids, you have to take care of the food, you have to go to the garden, Life was crazy, and it was hard to balance. And many other times when I would be beaten because I've not finished something. Many other times when I've been locked outside because I have cooked late. It was difficult. I felt worthless. They abused me so many times. And one time I walked back home when every belonging I had had been thrown outside. They told me, we don't need you here anymore. You're worthless. Go and look for your father. You don't even belong to our father. Go look for your mother. You're telling this girl to look for the mother who you know died. You're telling this girl to look for her father who you know she doesn't have. I picked up my bags and I knelt down and asked, please forgive me if I am wrong. Please help me back in the house. And they told me, you are rubbish. 
You can only send rubbish outside. Lillian, I walked alone. I knew that the world had ended for me. That made me to hate God even more. I closed out on compassion. I closed out on my sponsor. I closed out on school and started being a homeless child sleeping in the bush. All I wanted was death to take me. I did not want to share my pain with anyone. And one time I decided I should die. I got poison, which we used to kill rats. I was ready to take this poison so that they would find a dead body in the bush. But my life was full of tears. I wanted them to come and find a smiling dead body. I wanted something that would make me smile. I remembered that among the things they threw out for me were my sponsor letters that I hanged on with and I walked with all the time. So I wanted to read them one more time so that they give me a smile and I die happy. As I held these letters, rereading them one by one, my sponsor believed in me. My sponsor would write me scripture. My sponsor wrote simple letters, but they were letters of hope. They were letters to show that I am loved. I am still important in God's eyes. I did not take the poison. I walked with everything to church. And when the pastors saw me, they were looking for me for a long time. They did not know where I was. My family had abused them many times. They had told them that girl, she's married somewhere. A teenage girl, they want to send you so that they exchange you for dowry. And if they can't do it, then they send you away from home. But when my pastor looked at me, he told me, Lillian, no matter what is happening, from today you're my child. I felt owned, I felt loved, I felt protected. He took me to his home the way I was dirty, I was crying, but he helped me to pick up. He gave me people who talked to me. I hated everything, I did not even want to tell him what I was going through until much later. And I was able to go back to school. And at the age of 17, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I saw God was giving me much more than he was taking away from me. The Lord helped me and I graduated with a degree, a bachelor's in mass communications. And then I graduated with a master's in international relations and diplomatic studies. I started working for compassion and I work for compassion right now because I wanted to give hope to a child who is hopeless. I wanted these children to know that they are important. God has a plan for them. I see them, I see my childhood self in them, and I tell them, you are great. I started sponsoring children, even sponsoring the children of my siblings who hated me the most. I give them hope. I tell them, you can live a better life in Christ. God gave me the grace to forgive. I don't know if you're battling with forgiveness, but when you forgive, God lights up your path. I now sponsor another child with compassion. And every time I write to this child, I want him to have hope. This is how I address my letters. Dear His Excellency, the future president of the Republic of Togo, he's coming from Togo, which is in West Africa. I want him to have a smile when he gets that letter. 
the same way I had a smile when I got my sponsor's letters. I want to thank you, friends. I can't say it all. But one thing I want to thank you is choosing to sponsor children, choosing to give blindly when you don't even know that those kids exist, choosing to have that blind faith. I want to remember the words of the song of someone walking on the streets of heaven and hearing someone saying, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am alive. That was changed. In Africa, we kneel down and we say thank you. I want to say thank you. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. I am a changed person. I am helping others to change. I am breaking the cycle of poverty because of your generosity. Thousands, millions of children are behind me kneeling to say thank you and may God bless you. absolutely no way for me to follow that. <laughs> um, Lillian, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, it's amazing if you've been on a trip with Compassion, then you know uh, Lillian, um, she works as the field experience coordinator, so she goes with all of our teams to the different villages and um, to the places where we've partnered. And, and the stories that come back of her working with the children and the love that she has for them um, ha has just changed everyone who's, who's been on that trip. Um, so thank you so much for coming today and for sharing that story. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, today uh, is a Compassion Sunday, so the whole point, um, we want you to sponsor children with Compassion. We've had a long-standing uh, partnership with Compassion in one particular region in Uganda, um, and as Lillian mentioned, we've had over 400 uh, kids that we've sponsored in that region. Um, and so I'm going to be very brief today. Uh, like I said, I can't follow that, um, but I just want to take us to Scripture for a moment um, to tell, help share why Waterstone has a passion um, for helping kids and why we think God has called us uh, to help kids. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'll be pretty brief today. But before I jump into the text, uh, are there any baseball fans in the room? Okay, all right, a few. This will actually work. Last night, like, three people raised their hand. I was like, oh, no, this, is, this illustration is going to be terrible. All right, so baseball fans. To be honest, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I will say I love going to ballparks. There is something just incredibly relaxing about hanging out at a field, um, talking with friends, and, and watching a baseball game. I will say this. I come from Texas, and the ballpark in Arlington is 118 degrees with no shade, so it's miserable. But Coors Field is amazing. So Steffi and I love going on dates there um, in the summer nights. It's fantastic. But the other thing I know about uh, baseball is that the umpire is really key. And I think, actually, in any sport, I don't know if a referee has as much impact on the game as the umpire because he's calling basically uh, a call on every single play. And I know that because I was once a, a referee and an umpire in college. Worst job I've ever had by far. Um, but I know it's really important not to cross the umpire or the referee because they can affect the outcome of the game. And I came across a story this week that I think really clearly demonstrates that. Uh, there's a guy named Dave Hagler who is a, an umpire in local youth and rec baseball leagues. And he was actually from Colorado. He was up in Boulder. 
And one day he was driving, and as he was driving, it was one of those snowy days uh, in Colorado, one of the late spring snowy days. And as he's driving, he's kind of speeding through the snow, and he gets pulled over by a police officer. And the police officer uh, gives him a ticket, and as he's writing up the ticket, Dave, the umpire, starts saying, ah, please don't give me a ticket. Like, is there any way I can get out of this? It's going to make my insurance go up. I want to make sure, like, I'm not paying more. I'm really a good driver. This is a one-time thing. Please don't give me a ticket. And the police officer just kind of looks at him and says, sorry, getting a ticket. If you don't like it, just take it up in court, but I'm giving you a ticket today. A few weeks later, the police team is getting ready for their first baseball game of the season. <laughs> and as this police officer comes to home plate to the batter's box, first, first person to the plate, he does a double take because he sees that the umpire for the game is the person he gave the ticket to, and they both recognize each other. And so as he's walking up to home plate, and he, he kind of stops for a second, and then he catches his, his recognition, and he looks at the umpire, and uh, as he's getting ready to, to bat, he just says, so uh, uh, how did everything go with that ticket that, uh, that I gave you? <laughs> and the umpire, Dave, he, he looks at me and says, let's just say this, you should swing at everything. <laughs> so, he was going to get him back for that ticket. <laughs> and, and I think the, the truth of that story, while pretty funny, is that Actually, when we have injustices done against us, even perceived injustices, someone wrongs us or doesn't treat us the way we think is fair, we get up in arms and want to get back. We get upset and we want to take action to make things right. Even maybe going so far as to calling strikes on a police officer every time a pitch comes their way. But the truth is, while we can get really upset about injustices that happen to us, how often do we get energized and take action when we see victims of injustice? Do we have the same enthusiasm, the same fire, the same passion when we see other people in the world experiencing injustice? One of the unique things about our God, the God of Scripture, is that he continuously identifies with people and people groups who experience injustice. How different would our scriptures be if, if the story of Israel, when they're enslaved in Egypt, God shows up and he sides with the Egyptians, with the oppressors and the slavers, rather than those who are being oppressed and enslaved? I mean, how different would our scriptures look if every time the people of God are exiled or, or conquered, God sides with the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans? But continuously in scripture, we see a God who identifies relentlessly with those who the world has ostracized and, and, and oppressed and abused and exiled. Our God is a God who has a heart deeply concerned with the poor and the marginalized in this world. And he calls his people to be that same kind of people. And I think there's no clearer scripture that, that exhibits this than in James 1, um, chapter, chapter 1, verse 22. So you can turn there um, if you have your Bibles or you can follow along in the screen. But it starts, and James says in verse 22, and by the way, James is the brother of Jesus, um, which is an interesting thing when you think about this book, that, that the brother of Jesus is, is writing, telling people to follow his brother, um, who he says is the savior of the world. But this is what he says in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
First of all, what, what does that mean to look in the mirror and forget what you look like? Who does that? Who looks in the mirror and is like, I don't even remember what I look like? I think what James is saying is that why do we come to mirrors? We come to mirrors to see what's out of place, right? We come to mirrors and we're like, oh, my hair needs fixed, my beard needs trimmed, my makeup needs fixed. I know you guys do this. You're sitting at a stoplight and half of you use your mirrors not to look at the cars around you, but to check to make sure everything's still right, right? Like I have a, a friend who every time he goes in front of like a window at a shopping mall or something, he's like, oh, I'm gonna, okay, yep, nope, still good, let's keep going, right? Like we look at mirrors to make sure everything is in place and everything's right, but what good is a mirror if you look at yourself, you see something's out of place and you don't do anything about it? We come to scripture and it, it's a mirror, it reflects on us what needs to be changed and transformed, what needs to be altered. And if we don't listen to scripture and don't do anything with that information, then it's worthless. It has no point. And so he says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So three or four times, James is saying that it's not just listening to the word, but doing something with it. Doing. So what is it that we're supposed to do? He goes on in verse 26, and he says, Those who consider themselves religious, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, also deceive themselves. So the people who listen to the word and don't do it deceive themselves. And the people who think they're religious and talk a good game about being religious, and yet don't do anything, deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. And he goes on in verse 27 and he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When I hear that, that word to look after, I think of my mom asking me to look after my brothers and sisters. Paul, I'm going to go to the grocery stores. Do you mind looking after your brothers and sisters? And when I think of that, I think of how nonchalantly I would do that. I was vaguely aware of their existence while my mom was out of the house, and I assumed they would be alive when she came back. But I wasn't paying very close attention to whatever was going on in the house, and oftentimes as the oldest child, she would come back and be like, why is there a hole in the drywall? And I'd be like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened there, right? Like, I was vaguely aware of the things going on, but that's not at all what James is talking about when he says look after. It's this idea that you were supposed to pay at intense attention to, to examine, to observe, to know what's going on. Don't have a vague awareness of the distress of the vulnerable in this world, but know their need intimately. Be in proximity with them. Look after them in their distress, the, those who are most vulnerable, who are oppressed. God calls us to look after children, to look after kids, because he is a God who cares about kids who are vulnerable and oppressed and exiled and in poverty. And this week, as I was talking with my mentor on Wednesday about Compassion Sunday, um, I love my mentor. He's an amazing, godly man. Um, he's he's uh, in his mid-60s. Um, but he, like any good mentor, I think, is, is pretty cantankerous and kind of cranky in just the absolute best way. Um, and as I'm talking to him about compassion, uh, I see his l eyes light up in a way that, I, that you don't often see. But there was just this passion there. And I'm like, boy, what is that? So we start talking. And he says, I have got a story about compassion. Because he was a former missionary in the Philippines. 
And when he was on home assignment um, many years ago, he was speaking in random churches throughout trying to raise support and tell people about the work he was doing in the Philippines. And he happened across a random church in Salida. They had no connections there, but they allowed them to come in, speak, and share the story about what they were doing. And as they were, were sharing, after they were done, a woman comes up all excited and enthused, and he says, great, we're going to have another support of this. It's awesome. We'll and she says, ah, you're, you're from the Philippines. I have a compassion kid in the Philippines. He's like, oh. Oh, great. That's awesome. Love it. Fantastic. And she says, and I have a gift package that I want you to take to him. And he lives in Manila. And he takes everything within him, he's telling me, to not roll his eyes. Because Manila is a, is a city of over a million people. And this boy lives in the barrio. And he's thinking, slums, barrio, no addresses, this is an impossible task. How in the world am I going to get this package from Salida, Colorado to Manila, the slums, the barrios, and give it to this kid? There's no way. And so he, he takes the, pass the package as a gracious missionary, takes it back to Manila. He's not even stationed in Manila, so on their way back to their home, he stops at the, the missions offices that are in Manila uh, with their agency, and he begins asking around, trying to figure it out, and he thinks, man, if I can't find this kid, then I'll just give the package to all of the other kids in the bar who are, who are near here and, and just kind of distribute it uh, amongst some of the kids in need. So he starts asking around, and no luck, no luck, but as he's talking to a few people, um, one of the administrators in this office overhears the conversation, and she's a Filipino, and she says, oh... I know that family. My church is a part of a church plant in that barrio, and they've been there a few times, and I think I can find him for you. And so she brings the family to the agency, and he gives them the package, and everyone is in tears as they, this boy receives this gift all of the way from the suburbs of Salida, Colorado, to the slums of Manila. And as John was telling me this story, he still had tears in his eyes. He still was overcome by emotion, and I said, John, what, what's going on here, man? Like, uh, and he just looked at me, and he said, Paul, I still cannot believe that God orchestrated that. Like, it still baffles me that God would be a God who cares about a boy in the slums of Manila, that he is a God who would care enough about that boy to orchestrate the, the delivery of a gift to him across the world, the one in a million chance. What is our God that he cares and looks after children in that way? And the truth is, God does care about kids. It's interesting in this passage, this is God our Father, the worship he accepts, the worship he desires, the Father to look after the fatherless kids of this world, to look after the most vulnerable that is the God that we serve. He who cares after children who are fatherless calls us to care after them too. That is his heart, and so it should be the heart of his people. And the truth is, I, I love Waterstone because we get this. Like I said, we, we have sponsored over 400 kids. That is no small task. That is 400 lives that are changed. That is 400 stories like Lillian just shared with you. That is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's only one avenue that we have for caring about children. We have Royal Family Kids where we look after foster kids. We have Nightlights where we look after kids with special. We care about kids that are down and out and have nothing and that society overlooks. But we want to do more. And so if you don't have a compassion kid, I would encourage you to pray and reflect and consider having a compassion kid, sponsoring that child, giving them hope. It is $38 a month to change the life of a child. 
If you already have a compassionate kid, there are two things I would say to you. One, consider having another one. Consider sponsoring another child. And for heaven's sake, as Lillian just mentioned, write to them. Like, tell them about the love of Jesus. Tell them about your love that you have them. Give them a hope that their circumstances are not the end of their story. Let's care for these kids. And so after service, we have tables outside um, with little cards that have a picture of the kid, that photo that Lillian talked about. It shows the story and the region that they're from. If you would consider sponsoring a child, we would ask that you do so. Because we want to be a church that, that has the same heart of God, that cares for kids in this world. Cares for those who, who are longing for a hope and for a future. That need a father and need the church to show up and say, we care and we love you because our God cares and loves for kids. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, God, I thank you so much uh, for Lillian um, and her story, God. It is a, a story of incredible redemption and grace and mercy. Um, God, it is uh, overwhelming sometimes, uh, the stories we hear, the love you have um, for children and for those who, who are in the most desperate situations. Um, Father, this is not a guilt trip. This is a, a simply a call to have your heart. Um, we know that this is a church that cares passionately about kids, but I, I pray that um, we would have even more energy and enthusiasm and passion about the injustice that other people experience in this world, um, and that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus and take your hope uh, to them, um, even if it's through $38 a month and a letter telling a kid that they are loved. Um, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.